Good morning. Our passage of scripture this morning comes from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. If you will grab your Bibles and follow along as I read our text for this morning. This takes place immediately following the events that took that happened earlier in the day as Jesus was resurrected and then as he appeared to Mary Magdalene and other events that take place in the gospel. We are at the towards the end of the day now on that Easter day and this will carry us over into the following week as well. John chapter 20 verses 19 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is God's word for us this morning. Blessed be him. Let us go ahead and pray together. Father in heaven, again, we are incredibly grateful for the provision that you give to us when you give to us your word and every message therein. Lord, speak powerfully to us again this morning that we might know of your care, your love, your comfort, and ultimately the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Last Sunday was Easter, as I'm sure many of you know. And that Easter Sunday, most of us spent the day behind closed doors, shut up in our homes. And here it is, the week after Easter, and again on Sunday, most of us are going to spend that time behind closed doors, shut up in our homes. This is somewhat appropriate for us that we have this text before us, because this text speaks directly to that very same situation. The longer this pandemic draws on, the more I see in the people I speak with, in the things that I witness, and the way people talk and share things with me, the more I see an increased anxiety, fear, concern, questions, uncomfortability, everything that we would expect that would take place in the midst of such a disaster, such a traumatic experience as what we are going through now. 
it makes sense that we are concerned. It makes sense that we have that fear. And yet when we place it within context of the gospel, I think that we can see and understand the message slightly differently. It's wonderful that this passage comes for us today because it speaks so directly exactly to the things in which would leave us shut up inside our doors and locked inside our homes. We see here the antidote to fear. We see in this passage what it means when the concerns and the doubt and the frustration that we experience each and every day is confronted by the gospel message provided to us in Jesus Christ. If you will grab your Bibles again, and if we look right away, you'll notice here that not once, but twice, is it mentioned in this text that the disciples were behind closed doors, locked doors, it says, in verse 19 here. Although the disciples were, I mean, sorry, the doors being locked where the disciples were, and then later on it speaks the same thing, well, in verse 26, although the doors were locked, we get this mention of the locked doors uh, in this case. Now, I think that's there for a couple of different reasons. One, very obviously, is that the locked doors here provide a, a background for Jesus' miraculous appearance to the disciples. We're not told if he walked through the doors. We're not told if he just suddenly appeared before them, if he descended from the ceiling. We're not told how he appeared there, but immediately in a miraculous way, very clearly the way that John describes this, Jesus is present among the disciples. He is standing there where the disciples were, uh, and he is speaking, and he begins to speak to them. So clearly, part of the impetus for John to write about the locked doors is to stress this miraculous appearing of Jesus. And we get a sense here of the resurrected body and what it means for us, too, to share in that resurrected body, as Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians. We get that kind of a picture. But I think there's another reason, and an even more prominent one in the text, as verse 19 says, that John stresses this idea that they are behind locked doors. They're behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. Now, if you have never been in a life and death situation, uh, it would be hard for you to imagine, I think, the terror that would have gripped the disciples during this time period. I personally have never been in a life and death situation. I know many of you might have uh, through different situations, um, and, and so you might have a better appreciation for this. I've been, I could regale you with some car accidents that I've been in, a number of which would were uh, rather life-threatening at certain spots. Um, or I could talk about a moment where I went rock climbing and about 55 feet up off the ground, I realized that my equipment was not uh, put together correctly and that I literally was dangling without any protection. Uh, but, but those were, for me, those were momentary pangs of fear. I had the, the fear and the dread for my life that would have gone shooting through my body and it just would have been a temporary thing. For the disciples, this is totally different. A couple of days earlier, their leader had been arrested, tried, convicted, and then crucified. And the uh, religious authorities and the political authorities at this time, it would have made incredible sense for them to proceed to stamp out the movement that Jesus would have been involved in. Uh, they have taken the leader, so then they will scatter the sheep. And the disciples, as they are gathering together behind locked doors, would have been absolutely terrified consistently 
that they would have, it wouldn't just been a momentary terror, it would have been a consistent terror, this thought that at any moment the religious authorities might burst in and arrest them as well. And so in the midst of this great fear that they have, we have Jesus that appears to them. And Jesus appears to the disciples in this momentary way, in this powerful, miraculous way, and he says to them, peace be with you. Now, peace be with you would have been the rather common phrase. It would have been the, the common way in which the people would have greeted one another at that time. It's, not, it's more formal than saying hi to each other or how are you, um, but it would, would have still been a rather common way of speaking. And it might be easy to think that the only thing that takes place here is that Jesus greets the disciples in a rather formal, uh, appropriate way, that he would naturally say, you know, hello guys, here I am, kind of a thing. That's not the way I think we should read this, in part because John takes the time to repeat this phrase three different times in our short passage. He speaks it twice on that first Sunday, and then once on the following Sunday, the first Sunday there, where that resurrected Sunday, the opening verses 19 through 20, 21, speak about Jesus appearing to the disciples that Sunday morning, uh, Sunday evening of his resurrection, and as he speaks with them and says, peace be with you. And then later on, peace be with you. And then a week later, while the disciples are still behind the locked doors, I think that you have to understand then, for that whole entire week, they would have still been concerned about the Jews, still afraid of their lives, for their lives. And here they are standing in, in their midst is Jesus himself who says, peace be with you. Now, when Jesus says, peace be with you, I think it's more than just a standard greeting because of how often John reiterates this. And there's a good reason for that. For normally when we say something like that, peace be with you, or if I ask you, how, how are you, we all know those people that whenever you say, hey, how are you doing? They actually take that as an invitation to tell you how they're doing. Most of us just use that as a generic greeting. You know, hey, how are things going? That kind of a thing. It just means hello. Well, I think... In the same way, if I say to you, hey, have a good day, I'm not dictating that you have a good day. I'm expressing a hope, <coughs> excuse me, or a, or a wish. I, I, it's, a, it's a desire that I have for you that you would have a good day. That's similar here to what we have w the way peace be with you would have been used most often. I hope and I pray that peace would be with you. That's not what John's saying here. When Jesus is in the midst of his disciples and they are terrified, first off, they would have been utterly terrified of the Jews, as we've talked about, but they also would have been terrified here having the presence of Jesus Christ in their midst. I mean, here they had witnessed just days earlier his death and then his burial, and suddenly he is standing among them. The terror would have been just overwhelming for them. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus says, peace would be with you. Not, I believe, may you have peace with you, or I hope you have peace with you, but rather the declaration of what is possible because of the presence of Jesus Christ. What is possible because of the presence of Jesus Christ. Not that hope might be there, not that peace might be there, but that because of the work of Jesus Christ, peace is ours. That is what we have because of the coming of Jesus Christ, because of his resurrection, and because of his presence with the disciples. He says to them, 
not may you have peace, but now you will have peace. Peace be with you. What do we mean when we say peace? Now, peace obviously means the absence of strife. If you're in the middle of a war, you're not in the having peace. Or if you're in conflict, that's not peace. And so we normally think of peace in terms of the absence of conflict. And that's a fine opening definition. But when we look at the biblical term of peace, peace has this notion not just of the absence of conflict, but it has this, this idea present within it of fullness or completeness or uh, purposefulness. If you are at peace, you, have, you, you are experiencing the fullness of what God has for you. You're experiencing the wholeness of the Lord's work in your life. You, you are completely and totally satisfied with what the Lord is doing in your life, the place where he has put you. When God offers peace, he is not simply saying, may you not have conflict in your life. He is saying, may you May you experience everything by which and for which you have been created. When Jesus says to the disciples, peace be with you, he is announcing here in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their terror, that because of the presence of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, his presence with us, is the antidote for the poison of fear. That poison of fear that each of us, if you're paying any attention to our society today, that poison that is creeping into every aspect of our life and seeking to tear the fabric, the social fabric, and our whole understanding of ourselves and our existence, to tear that apart, here comes the antidote. The true antidote is the presence of Jesus Christ and that peace in which he offers. Now, what is that peace? How do we understand that peace? Well, first off, I think we have to understand it as peace with God. When the scriptures talk about peace, they overwhelmingly are not speaking about the lack of conflict horizontally, not the lack of conflict that we have with each other or the anxiety or the fear that we have upon this earth. Ultimately, when the peace is being offered in the scriptures, what we're talking about here is the peace that we have ultimately with God. And so John, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, since we have been justified by faith through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Since we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Now, this explains why it is that Paul, that John now records these statements about Jesus coming and saying, peace be with you following the resurrection. Jesus offers that peace. He brings that peace with his presence now because of the fullness of our salvation that has occurred through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We now have been justified by the work of Jesus Christ, and because of our justification, because we have been made right with God, now he then looks upon us and says, now it is possible for you to have peace. And what kind of peace? Ultimately, it is peace with God. That great enmity that exists in this world, the, the horror and the hatred that God has for our sin has been taken away. And we no longer are enemies with our Lord, but now we have been brought near to him and dear to him so that we are now experiencing the fullness of the peace 
and the satisfaction for which he created you. We have peace with God. But more than that, when Jesus says to the disciples, peace be with you, he is also identifying the source of that peace. The peace that we have is in Christ himself, in God. It is the peace that we have with God, but it is also the peace that we have in God. The reason why we have that fullness, the reason why we have that satisfaction, the reason why everything in your life comes together in one is because we have been united with God. We find ourselves together with him through the work of Jesus Christ. And we will never have peace. You can never have peace while you are separated from God, for one thing, because we are still at war with God, but also because the only real peace that we have, we have been created to be with God. God. We have been created to find ourselves in God, and until we find ourselves in God, we will never experience that peace. We have peace with God, we have peace in God, and the peace that we have is the peace of God. It's not just some random thing that is floating out there. It's not some quality or quantity that we could all put our hands on and say, boy, I just want a little bit more peace. What is being offered here, what Jesus brings to the disciples through his very presence is the announcement of, hey, this right here is the peace that belongs to my Father. It is the peace of God that now is for us and with us. So we have the peace with God, the peace in God, and the peace of God is ours because of the presence of God. Of Jesus Christ. Over the next week, over the next couple of days, there are going to be opportunities over and over again for you to confront the despair, the doubt, the frustration, the fear, the anxiety of right now our social life as we are socially distancing, as, we, as our economy is grinding to a halt, as we fear for the health and the livelihood of our family members and our loved ones, over and over again there are going to be opportunities for you to confront straightforward the anxiety and the fear and the angst in your life and in the lives of the people around you, and you have to ask yourself over and over again, what does... The presence of Jesus Christ, who brings the peace with God, who brings the peace in God, who brings the peace of God into my life because I have been justified with Jesus Christ, justified through Jesus Christ. What does that mean for the fear, for the doubt, for the concern that I am feeling right now? We have to confront very clearly this text that speaks to us of that gift. And Jesus here is not providing an option. He is not saying that this is a possibility. He is identifying that which is for his believers. Peace, my peace, is with you, is for you, is present here as you are experiencing the concerns that will continue to ravage and will only get worse around us, the antidote to the poison of your fear and the poison of the fear of everyone else around us, the antidote is the presence of Jesus Christ. So Jesus here is with Thomas, 
on that eighth day. The eighth day is most likely the very week, the way in which uh, the days are counted for the Jewish people would have been, been from one week to the next. So here we have another Sunday night. Sunday night, now Thomas was not with them when Jesus first appeared. We're not told where he was or anything like that. Uh, but Thomas now shows up and they tell him, hey, we have seen the Lord, and Thomas doesn't quite believe. Now this is where we get the moniker for Thomas of Doubting Thomas. Uh, and indeed, Thomas is doubtful, doubt, very doubtful, as you can tell from the text here. And Jesus does indeed rebuke Thomas for his doubt. There is good reason why we identify him as doubting Thomas. I tend to think, though, that he gets a little bit of a bad rap, Thomas does here. Because have you ever been in one of those situations where you're in a meeting or something like that, and there's this very obvious, very simplistic question that clearly needs to be asked, and everybody kind of looks around at each other and thinks, well, who's going to ask this question? Who's going who's to state the obvious? Uh, the great line that has attached itself to Thomas through the centuries has always been, Thomas has doubted so that we don't need to. Thomas doubted so that we don't need to. Because when the disciples come and say, hey, we have seen the Lord, somebody needs to ask the question, are you deluded? Are you imagining things? Was this a vision? Was this just some type of a ghost? What do you mean that you've seen the Lord? And so Thomas here is very empirical. He's very emphatic. He's very tangible in the way in which he says things. By golly, if I don't stick my finger in the nail holes, if I don't stick my hand in the sides, I will never believe. Now, I've got to tell you, when I read that, it reads all too often like a lot of the conversations that I have with people. When they say, oh, I won't believe in Jesus unless these things happen. Well, when those things then happen, they turn around and say, well, I still don't believe. Most of us have had those kind of conversations where you realize that no matter what test somebody passes, they're still not going to believe. When I read Thomas, his statement along those lines, if I don't stick my hand in his side, I will never believe, I tend to think we're dealing a little bit with that initially, that he's overwhelmed with that. So now Jesus, who is with Thomas, shows up with Thomas. Now he turns and he speaks to Thomas. And again, you can see this very clearly in the text in verses uh, 25 here. So the disciples, when Thomas makes that statement, verse 26, Jesus then stood among them and said, peace be with you. Again, that reiteration. Then he turns to Thomas and says, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand in my side. And then he says those marvelous words, do not disbelieve, but believe. Or the way in which it might be stated, stop disbelieving and believe. Now what is Jesus doing here? He is not commanding, uh, this is not a mental exercise. You know, if you just put your head around things and you can understand stuff. No, what he's identifying is that the disbelief itself is something that has come upon Thomas. I think most of us tend to think that belief is something that we have to work ourselves up to, or it's a gift of God that comes uh, above and beyond what we are, that our natural state is to disbelieve. Well, that might be the case in our sin. In our sinful nature, indeed, our natural state might be to orient us away from God. It is. And to disbelieve the things of the Lord. Absolutely, that is true. But we have been created. That peace that comes upon us, that brings the fullness of who we are, 
that peace that comes upon us also puts us in an entirely different situation. The doubt that Thomas is experiencing is foreign to him now, for he has been redeemed by the Lord. Does doubt happen? Of course it does. But what Jesus says here to Thomas is, stop doubting. Do not doubt. Do not be faithless, but rather trust to put your confidence in the Lord. And that's exactly what the presence of Jesus Christ does in each one of our lives. When you are filled with doubt, when you are sitting saying, where is our Lord in the midst of this pandemic? What, what does it mean that we worship a God where we have thousands of people dying, where we have hundreds of thousands of people who are sick? What does it mean that this is our Lord and you have that doubt that comes upon you that begins to question the seriousness and the love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus stands with us. It is the presence of our Lord that chases away the disbelief that looks again upon us and says, do not doubt, but believe. Sometime this week, perhaps many times this week, you are going to have momentary moments. What Momentary moments. You're going to have moments where you sit there and ask yourself, where is the Lord's hand? Where is the love of this God that I worship and adore? Where is the power of this God? It is in the presence of Jesus Christ that is with you that says, peace be with you. Stop doubting and believe. So we have Jesus with Thomas, and then we have Jesus speaking to Thomas, and now we have Jesus being worshipped by Thomas. Take a look here at Thomas's response in verse 28. Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. What a wonderful bookend to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John starts out with that great in, uh, prologue that starts to speak about the Word was with God and the Word was God. The proclamation here of the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God. And here at the very end of the book, right towards the end of the, of the, uh, of the Gospel record, we have that great pronouncement, this confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God, as he looks at Jesus Christ and proclaims him his Lord. Now, what do we mean by Lord? Lord is the association of authority or power or, uh, or, or uh, direction, guidance, one of these things. It would have been appropriate for people to refer to Jesus as Lord without necessarily ascribing to him the power of God or the being of God. And so when Thomas says to Jesus, you're my Lord, it's one thing. But when he turns and says, my Lord and my God, and that's an association, Lord and God are linked together in the Old Testament consistently to speak to the very presence of God himself. And here, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he's identifying Jesus as divine. But more than that, notice that he just doesn't say, Jesus, you are Lord and God. He says, my Lord and my God. 
Because what is the core of our relationship with Jesus Christ? It is not a set of things that we acknowledge. It's not a set of doctrines that we uh, adhere to that we say, oh yes, we believe that Jesus is divine. And believing that is fine, but that gets you nowhere. What gets you into the presence of, sorry, what the presence of Jesus brings to each and every one of us is the ability not to claim him simply as Lord, but to claim him as my Lord. There's a a personalness here that Thomas embraces. Thomas then looks at this as, and my Lord. And one thing I want you to note, I love about this text, that immediately following this, after this proclamation of Thomas, so Jesus stands before Thomas and says, Thomas, go ahead, stick your fingers in here. Stick your hand in your side. And we had heard earlier that Thomas says that he would never do this, never believe, unless he sticks his finger in the, and sticks his hand inside. Well, when Jesus presents himself in that way, I think it would be natural for us to think that then Thomas said, well, okay, and he did those kind of things. But notice what Jesus says in verse 29. Have you believed because you have not touched me? But have you believed because you have seen me? I think what happens here is that Thomas is standing, he's talking to his fellow disciples, his brother disciples, saying, I'll never believe unless I actually touch. Jesus stands before him and says, fine, go right ahead and does it. But the mere presence of Jesus so overwhelms Thomas that he doesn't even touch Jesus. He doesn't do the very things that he claimed that he had to. Instead, he falls upon his face and says, my Lord and my God, because the confession ultimately is not simply a a statement of faith. It is a statement of worship. When the presence of Jesus is here in your midst, there is but one response. When the presence of Jesus transforms your anxiety into peace. When the presence of Jesus transforms your doubt into trust. When the presence of Jesus transforms your fear into faith. There is but one response. And that is to worship the Lord our God. Sometime this week you are going to have an opportunity again of experiencing the presence of Jesus as he changes, as he transforms your anxiety into peace, your doubt into trust, your fear into faith, and there is but one response. To fall on your face, to proclaim him your Lord and your God, and to worship him with all of your heart. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we do once again thank you for the grace that you have poured out upon us in Jesus Christ. That because of his transforming work, we have peace with you. We have peace in you. We have your peace with us. Lord, because of that peace, fear is driven away. The antidote to our fear is the presence of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.